The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. I am Dave Goldberg, I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow live tweeting of the show at hashtag bigbeaconradio. Our first segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And today we're, um, we're blessed to be joined by a longtime journalist at the Chronicle for Higher Education, Goldie Blumenstick. Welcome to the show, Goldie. Thanks for having me, Dave. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show, and, and I'm just so interested in getting your perspective on a long career in higher education uh, journalism. And um, but, but before we do that, uh, you know, you've you've got degrees in uh, history and journalism. You're an author. You're a speaker. You've been writing for the Chronicle for 28 years. And we'll talk about your 2015 book, Higher Education in Crisis. But what um, on the show we're interested in getting to know our guests uh, personally. And so, what were some of the key early influences in your life that led um, to your career path? Um, well, I, I, I think there's probably two that are primary. Um, one is I'm the child of Holocaust survivors. Both of my parents um, were in concentration camps during the war. And mm. I think that just left me with a very strong sense of social justice as a kid because I saw the dangers of um, authoritarianism and totalitarianism and hate and genocide. Um, yes. I lived it in my life, and so I was, I was always sort of sensitive to those issues. So I think I always knew that was going to be uh, whatever I did in my career was going to always sort of try to do something along, you know, something to be of, on, on the force of the good guys, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and then when I went to college, I um, was lucky enough to get involved with the campus newspaper, and I just I'd always enjoyed writing in school, and I just discovered journalism as a, you know, I went to uh, Colgate University. We didn't have a lot of really big controversial news up there in Hamilton, New York, but it was still really fun to be, you know, the campus journalist at the paper. So I think the combination of those two things, when it came time to leave college and figure out what to do next, suddenly journalism seemed like a pretty logical direction to go. Yeah, and then you went on and and got a master's in journalism. But, uh, you know, on the program, we're also interested in... uh, 
unleashing experiences as as those described in a whole new engineer the sense of that somewhere in your life oftentimes there's someone or something that gives you the courage to do something that you might not have otherwise done and i'm curious if you have um, some stories to tell us around unleashing in your life I'm sitting here trying to think if I do. I'm not so sure I really do have an unleashing story to tell. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one thing I just love about being a journalist is that you get to be a witness to a lot of history, and um, and tell, and it's important to tell it as honestly and as you know break through the um, the BS as much as you can and try to tell people what's really happening. So uh, I don't know if there's some courage in all that, but uh, I mean I can't. I'm, it's not like I've been on the on the front lines of covering wars or things like that, but uh, I do think it's important to be the person who's willing to, you know, sort of say the un- find you know to let people know the uncomfortable truth sometimes. I, there's it seems to me there's a good bit of courage in in being able to do that, and and you're doing that, and it's not that everyone wants to hear that um, higher education is in crisis, and you're talking pretty plainly and frankly about it. So you've had a long career at the Chronicle, and and of course many of our listeners uh, in higher education are are familiar, at least familiar with, and many are hopefully readers of the Chronicle. But um, just for those who are less familiar with the uh, publication, what what can you tell them about it that they don't know? Well, um, it's really a fun year to be at the Chronicle. Actually, we're about we're celebrating our fiftieth year of publication at the Chronicle, um, and we're still owned by the founder of the company, founder of the organization, and. He's a, his name is Corbin Gwalton. He's quite a remarkable man, and he's really built a, you know, we have a, about 200 people who work here at, this, at the Chronicle, and he's really left us with incredible, given us really good values with which to pursue our journalism, which is really exciting. We're also owned by, he also owns, we also, our sister newspaper, just a few seats away from me, is the Chronicle of Philanthropy. So these are two sectors of the of society that I think our owner believed very strongly in, um, that needed, you know, strong independent coverage, and we are very independent. Um, that's a really wonderful part of our job. We we have subscriptions, we have advertisers, and we try not to be, you know, we try to be respectful of both, but not beholden to either. Actually, we try to be very, um, very much the independent voice of higher education, and at a time where there's not a lot of independent voices out there, um, you know, there's a lot of people with agendas out there putting out information, and I sure. think. I think I, we're a very um, well-resourced organization that doesn't have an agenda. Yeah, nice. And you you called out explicitly the values, and and um, the whole new engineer is uh, a value one values-based approach to engineering education. And and as I do work in the private sector, it seems to me that a lot of people are very much in tune with with starting with values. So, what? How would you characterize the culture? And the values of the Chronicle. Um, well, one thing you should know is we have a. Is, th- th- this might sound trivial, but it's not in any way trivial. We have a you know a very um, uh, deep bench on our copy desk. We care very much about accuracy and mm. language, and getting making sure and fairness, and making sure the story is right. And every story gets edited twice at least, sometimes three three times, and sometimes even more. Uh, no story gets published without two editors looking at it. To me, that says one thing about values, especially at a time when a lot of what happens in journalism these days is not even you know one copy editor or you know or blog or you know stuff just sure. kind of goes out and people don't even look at it. Um, and you know we're committed. It's a newspaper that 
news organization that's committed to sort of developing expertise among its staff members, you know, treats the staff members with a great deal of respect, which I really appreciate also as a longtime employee. But, you know, that that's a value that I think gets reflected in our coverage because we're not trying to do this news on the cheap on our end. We're, you know, we, we, we believe this news is important and we invest in making sure it's done well. And for, for those of your readers, uh, those of your listeners who haven't seen our site, it's a really attractive website. We have a ton of data on our website. We have a ton of uh, interactive uh, features. It's, it's not just this thing that Slapdash put together. You know, we have a beautiful print product and we have a, uh, a, a website that's really rich. And that's not. To, I'm not plugging that to advertise the Chronicle at all. No. I'm just saying that it reflects the values of the um, of the owner and our organization. That we don't we 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 treat our readers with with a great deal of respect. We don't just throw stuff up out there. We try to make sure that we're, what we're giving them is something meaningful. Well, and I was looking at uh, this, this week's uh, edition, and, uh, you know, and I, always, I always like the, um, the surveys of... Um, of the president? Of, of, <laughs> well, of, of salaries. Not, I've become less enchanted of the, the, the president's sur- surveys over the years, and maybe we'll talk something about that. But then, uh, then the... Um, the annual survey of great colleges to work for, I think, is a really great, uh, great feature of that kind of setting a standard. Talking, having, a, uh, talking about issues other than um, um, edu- you know, educational excellence or reputation and or research excellence and reputation to talk about well, what kind of places this to actually work at is really important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. So. Uh, in 1988, when when you started at the Chronicle, if I've got my dates right, I was an assistant professor at the University of Alabama. I was about four years into my, um, maybe I was just I was maybe going up for associate professor. But anyways, I was er- it was early in my career, and uh, uh, my recollection uh, was higher ed was uh, well recognizable, but uh, fairly fairly different back then. And I guess. Um, from, and so you've been on this beat for a long time. So what uh, what are some of the big differences that you've noticed from the beginning of your career to to now in terms of the things that are important to cover and what's covered and you know even what's higher ed like? What oh gosh everything is different. I mean it's there's a few things that are the same. I think there's so many things that we're covering we, that we write about now that we would have never written about back, you know, certainly not in 1988, well, I mean, ultimately, fundamentally, the Internet has really changed a great deal of higher education sure. um, in, in a huge way. Um, I think that, and I write about this a lot in the book as well, I think, frankly, for good or for ill, um, higher education has become a lot more administratively focused and maybe even a little bit more bureaucratized. Um, there's, it's, it, it seems a simpler kind of a, um, industry back when I first started writing about it. Not that it wasn't a sophisticated industry, but the nature of um, the nature of, of the kind of expertise that one needed to run a college was sort of different, seemed almost different back then. Um, <laughs> one of my particular pet peeves is, it's, um, and I'm gonna, sure I'm going to hear about it from all the people in the public relations field, is that it's become <laughs> a lot more sort of dominated by, by the public, public relations and marketing departments. Um, you know, I used to be able to you know, in 1988, I, I could have called the professor, called up the president at the University of Alabama, spoken to a call that office, spoken to someone in the office, and you know, if the president was free, he or she would have gotten on the phone with me, and um, we would have had an interesting conversation. Now, there's this whole sort of vetting process: who am I? Who are they? What are my questions? You know, it, there's, you know, I, I 
I'm not so sure higher ed is better served by having some of this um, sort of the marketing the marketing um, sheen that go that that comes in higher education these days. I I realize that. Um, People think that there's more of a gotcha mentality in the press and that they feel they need to respond to that, but uh, I, I'm not so sure that higher ed is better understood as a result of what we've seen over the past 25 years, 28 years. Um, yeah. That's a, you know, <laughs> if any, so if it was, a, simpler, it was it, a simpler time. Yeah, it was it a was, simpler you know, time I mean, then. Yeah, it, wasn't like, it wasn't like, oh, log cabin days or something like that. I'm not trying no. to be that nostalgic about it, but it was a very different... I think the whole experience of higher ed had a much, much different feel about it. Uh, to me... As a reporter, I felt like I was getting a few more authentic voices back then. It's much, certainly not impossible to do that now, but you have to sort of, it's harder, it's harder to get those voices now. People are onto messaging. That's and, a really interesting word you've just used. Yes, I mean, a lot of you know, what Mark and I write about in the book is about kind of a return to authenticity and how do we, how do, we do that and much of what's of much of what's taken place in this kind of making it more corporate or it's actually not even more corporate I think in many ways it'd be easier for you to call and talk to a CEO of a major organ a more major profit or for-profit organization than it is to talk to the 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 president of a, of a major university these days well, it's but, not that easy to call a CEO too let's, let's be clear about that but they're not that you know they don't get on the line that quickly either but they are different kinds of institutions and I do sometimes wonder whether it should be as hard, I mean, obviously yeah. they're, bus- they're busy, but um, they're representing different sets of issues and re- different sets of values a corporation is versus a university. And so it is sometimes frustrating that the, the, the sort of the hurdles one has to kind of go through to get to the authentic voices and to find the voices that haven't been sort of, you know, prepped or ready to spin for that, on that particular story. Yeah. But, I mean... And- but at the end of the day, you know, right. when you think about what you learned in a class, what you what you take away from your college experience, it's almost always certainly that the most authentic experience is what what lives with you the longest. That time you were in the classroom and the professor said something to you that you know really broke through, and you know your aha moment in the class. That's not something that you can sort of um, manufacture through a marketing campaign. That's all. You know, the marketing doesn't isn't what you remember. What you remember are the actual authentic experiences that you had while you were, you know, going to college. Yeah. And, and so, um, a lot's changed. Um, what are some of the key things you've learned? Um, maybe unexpected. I mean, there's so much over a long career, but what are some of the things that, uh, stand out in your mind relative to the conversation we're having? Yeah, I think. Can you give me like a little better uh, in, my, in my life, in my work? In no, my, and, yeah, in, in, in the, the higher ed. ed. Yeah, and, well, actually, I'll let you interpret that. Yeah, what, uh, what, uh, yeah, what? Uh, if if it's a life lesson, that's fine. If it's a higher ed lesson, that's fine. But what uh, what are some of the key learnings in in your twenty eight years with the Chronicle? Well, I guess in the end, it's like nuance really matters. <laughs> it's like the deep, you know, it's the there are, you know, it's always easy to assume you you read something or you see something happening and then you figure it's, be, it's oh it's because of this and you because you brought your past experience to it but you know usually I've always learned that when I pick up the phone and talk to somebody about a thing it's always a little more com- it's always more complex than I think it is it's always there's always more angles to it than I think it is than I think that where I would have expected that there would be. Um, I mean, that's so yeah, I mean. and I get that sense in reading in your book that uh, there was a respect for the complexity and uh, as a 
as a scholar and uh, researcher in complex systems, I, adm- I admired that about your um, your your writing. What el- what else What else would you add to that? Um, I guess I'm not really sure. I mean, that's sort of the the strongest overall theme. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to probe and see if there was something something. Um, uh, something else. So, and and we're we're going to take a break here in a minute. But um, what else would you like our audience to know about your experiences uh, at the Chronicle or about the Chronicle itself before we take a break? Uh, I hope people look at get a chance to take a look at the Chronicle and look at the site. And you know, we're doing some new things, including some of the stuff that I'm working on now, sort of focus, focusing on innovation in higher education and the way we're trying to sort of refocus, uh, you know, a slice of our coverage within our coverage, the project that I work on now called Relearning, Mapping the New Education Landscape. We have a slogan, too. Everything has a slogan now. Um, well, of course, but, and things have to things have to be branded and consistently labeled. And, yeah, and maybe, yeah, just, uh, of course, that, that change in higher education is a big theme on this show. How would you describe that project? Well, well we're sort of looking pretty broadly across the spectrum on all kinds of topics, the, the, the new discussions about different roles cr- of credentials, new discussions about um, different approaches to teaching, uh, new approaches to the way we're understanding the alternative education providers, which is kind of a whole new sector that is now, you know, maybe, you know, not traditionally thought of as part of higher education, but, you know, the more um, people's understanding and demand changing. I think we're at the Chronicle, we're trying to take stock of the fact that there are rules in higher education who have nothing to do with being part of like an accredited college, but they have a big impact on people's lives. And we want to make sure we're covering that, that area of the, uh, of the educational landscape as well. And frankly, the role of business and the way businesses, uh, I've, I've uh, called this sort of the embedded for profit, the, the new role that businesses are playing in sort of shaping and other players are sh- are playing in the reshaping what a higher education looks like these days. That's one of the things that's really different today than certainly in 1988 and even certainly than 10 years ago, the important role that ed tech companies play, investors play, think tanks are playing, foundations. They're all, as I view it at least, having much more, much more influence on the shape of higher education than they've ever had. And that's really that's something that's very different that we're trying to cover as part of this relearning project. Nice. I mean, I'm glad to hear it. These are certainly things that we're interested in in uh, in Big Beacon and Three Joy and and uh, many of the the people that we try to network with are exactly those kinds of folks. So I'm glad to hear hear about uh, that kind of coverage uh, increasing at the Chronicle. Why don't we Why don't we take a little bit of a break and then let Let's come back after the break and talk a little bit about your. Uh, uh, 2015 uh, book talking about the crisis in American higher ed. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. 
David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Um, the second segment is sponsored by Three Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your educational organization at threejoy.com. And uh, we're rejoined by Goldie Blumenstick of the Chronicle for Higher Education. And, and Goldie, last year you wrote a, a book, uh, American Higher Education in Crisis, What Everyone Needs to Know. And writing a book, any time you sit down to write a book, it's a major undertaking and you don't take it lightly. What, uh, what motivated you to write this book? Well, I have to confess, it wasn't actually personal motivation. Um, okay. I was, I was approached by Oxford University Press because they were, the editors there were seeing a lot of um, news in the headlines about uh, higher, higher education, you know, coming under fire. Is it the end of college? There's a lot of noise at the time about the student debt crisis. And they have that series, What Everyone Needs to Know, and they wanted to do a book about the higher education crisis, as they saw it in the United States, and they approached me about it. And I have to say, I was actually a little bit reluctant at first to take on the project, um, because at first I thought that a lot of what I was reading was a little silly and a lot more hype than reality, that, I, that there wasn't you know, necessarily a higher education crisis, that you know, there was a student debt issue, but that a lot of, I thought a lot of it was sort of driven by the changes that were happening in the economy and, you know, sort of post, little post-recession um, despair, all of which was real, but not necessarily about higher ed. Um, but they kind of pushed me a little bit on it, actually, and they said, well, think about it, you've been at the Chronicle then 25 years um, when this started, um, you know, education changed, and isn't it confronting some major challenges that it never used to face? And, you know, when I sort of stopped and sat down and actually, like, you know, reflected on that a little bit, I realized they were right, <laughs> that there were quite a few changes, you know, that it was really probably at a very big inflection point. Now, I, I honestly can't tell you, you know, what date that is, what, what's the, you know, the point of that inflection point. It's not one of those sure. things where it hits, hits at a direct point. But, you know, over, over a period of time, higher education has been certainly in this, at, a, at a pivot point, and it's a flat pivot, maybe. You're the engineer. You could draw it better probably than me. But, uh, and so, you know, I decided to take it on. And actually, I, I insisted on putting the question mark in the title, American Education in Crisis, because getting back to that nuance point a little bit, I just thought some of the things people were arguing were challenges for higher education weren't necessarily um, as big a challenge as they were making out, while others were. Like, I think 
the cost issue is one that's often overblown, the cost to students, because I think there are still many incredibly affordable ways for students to go to college. Um, you know, the student debt issue, of course, is a, is a bigger concern. So that's sort of where it came to be. But in the end, I decided, again, looking with that 10-year lens, I kind of went back and thought, what would I be writing about now that I would not have been writing five or ten years from now, five or ten years ago? And I realized that so much had changed and so many of these things were actually hitting a point of um, real concern to the to families and to students and to lawmakers and the public that I could probably put together a pretty cohesive book about the topic. And so, and that book is divided in four parts, uh, students, cost spending and debt, who's in charge and what's ahead. And so let's start with the student side of this. In what ways are, um, and, and, and I guess, and I'm, Given your answer, I guess I'm talking to a crisis skeptic who's been converted. So, uh, but uh, someone who cares about the nuance of it. So, in what what ways or not are are students facing um, a crisis in higher education? I mean, if, if you, as you know from looking through the book, I mean, one of the biggest challenges is, I mean, the cost is a problem for certain students in certain environments and and in certain circumstances, but I think the bigger challenge for American higher education broadly is the sort of the, um, the disparities and opportunities still. Um, poor, whether if you're poor, you're much less likely to um, get a college degree than you end up, with a, end up with a bachelor's degree than if you're wealthy, from a wealthy family. And somehow or other, after all these years, higher education has, and society broadly, has not managed to close that gap. Uh, the number that I... Um, sticks with me always having written this book um, is, you know, a young person uh, from a poor family, a young person from rich family is nine times as likely to have earned their BA by age 24 than one from a poor family. I mean, this is America 2016, and that's still kind of the statistic. Um, you know, it just the, op- the, the opportunity levels are just not e- even in the country, and I think that's one of the points that I thought was important to make. It was actually one of the reasons I decided in the end to, to write the book because what what I was reading at the time wasn't really getting at that um, equity question nearly as, which is such an important one. Uh, so I, to me, that's sort of the biggest challenge, the biggest uh, biggest problem facing our higher education system right now. Yeah, and, and um, uh, so, okay, so certainly let's... Um and a good deal of the book is devoted to um, economics and costs, and I'd argue that much of your argument is regarding an economic crisis of of um, who's paying and how are things being paid for. What, what's and going frankly, on? And frankly, it's an econ- I mean, that's where you sort of get to this whole debate about cost versus price, right? I mean, the cost of providing higher education is a very big challenge for the institutions that are um, charged with providing it. Um, yeah. That's where the price problems come in, but it, their their cost, their the business model of higher education is challenged by a lot of factors these days. Um, most important, two two biggest ones being um, state support for public higher education has fallen dramatically over the past twenty twenty five years, and that leaves a big hole in the budgets for state schools. And family incomes have not been rising over the past twenty five years um, on on average. And that leaves a big hole for the people who are trying to provide financial aid for students. Um, those two things are, you know, the, the, the giant donut holes in, in the budgets at both public colleges and private colleges, and it's, it, it makes them much less 
um, sustainable as as ongoing concerns. Well, and the the flip side of that is that the salaries continue to rise faster than the the salaries and tuitions continue to rise faster than faster than, than inflation, inflation right? Yes. Because so people yeah. in higher education tend to be um, sort of at the higher higher end of the of the scale for. Um, you know, they're prof- it's mostly professionals who work in higher education. Um, these are not, you know, um, generally factory kind of jobs. Um, there are a lot of jobs where, you know, if you have people, you know, you, have, you employ a lot of PhDs, and, and frankly, the they do they they are they are they do cost more than other people in the economy. But you know, the salary increases for the for the professors are not what really largely what's been driving this. I think what's been driving it a lot is the growth in administrations at universities has been driving a lot of this. But also the cost of facilities, um, frankly, the cost of technology, even though technology is supposed to save (coughs) institutions of money, for the most part in higher education, it's until recently, I don't think it's done very much to lower the costs of higher education. Um, I think it's all true. The, The complaints that you hear from colleges about the cost of regulation are all True, um, they're not the only reasons. Think prices go up. Um, colleges also are not very good at um, sharing costs with, among themselves. Um, you don't see very. Everybody's got to be their own in, individual. Sharing solution. anything. Any. Well, yeah. <laughs> You're any, sharing any. I mean, collaborate. You know, so it's an. Indiv- they don't collaborate, know. and they certainly but, don't collaborate yeah. on the administrative side, which is a place where they probably could be saving a great deal of money for themselves and probably learning learning from each other. I mean, they, a couple places they share cooperatively on bike purchasing and things like that, but uh, on a lot of the broader costs, they don't share even when they're right, you know, living right near each other or, or like kinds of institutions. And they don't share academic programs very well, which could be a really interesting approach that they few take where, you know, maybe, you know, maybe three schools should offer the same degree and you can take, you know, you take your courses at three different institutions. That'd be a cool opportunity for students and an interesting way to share resources. But you don't see a lot of that in higher education. Yeah, and actually, the, and we'll talk about MOOCs and technology later, but I, 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 the, the, for me, the interesting part of MOOCs isn't putting lectures up online, but it's the possibilities of that institutional sharing that are implied in those kinds of higher level relationships that, that, that maybe there could be sharing of of, of something um, at at some higher level, the possibly inner inner uh, inner working and inner and inner collaboration is the more interesting institutional rearrangement of for me of what MOOCs are about. Not just putting putting classes online, and you're sort of suggesting that that kind of sharing and collaboration could be taking place. But the institutions, uh, well, it's a, it's it's largely a model borrowed from the corporate world. It's competitive and. Uh, uh, Purdue down the block from Illinois is a competitor, and they're competing for the same kids to go in statics or calculus, and and uh, even though they're really kind of serving fairly different service areas, they compete. But yet they're they're you know on the scholarly side, there's an incredible amount of collaboration. Yes. And so I, you know, and and also I've always found you know through higher education associations and other kinds of groups, whenever I hear I always hear about you know colleges going to visit other colleges to learn how things are done. And then, so it seems like there's interest in that, but then they come back to their own campus and there's often a, well, we can't do that. We're not really like them. You know, there's a lot of, you hear a lot of that later on. There's a lot of 
there's a lot of really good ideas that are out there that don't get adopted by each other's place, and there's a lot of reinventing of the wheel in higher education, which, and you know, at a time when money was flusher, that probably was fine. You know, everyone could afford to have their own institution with their own really unique quirks and charms. Um, some of that is getting harder to justify economically these days. You know, and plus, you yeah. know, student choices are changing, too, so... Yeah, well, and a lot of uh, a lot of the work that we do in Big Beacon, trying to bring organizations, different schools together, not just in the United States but around the world, and people are doing these really cool things. And I'd like to report that we found the magic formula to get people to collaborate and actually learn from each other. But there, there is a kind of a natural resistance, and the culture of higher ed is very much uh, well. And even you know, professors don't. They collaborate in research areas with collaborators, but uh, they might not collaborate so much with the professor down the hall in the same department right. as them. So there's this individualism that's kind of culturally resists this sort of thing. So um, certainly at a you know, time, go, no, go ahead, go ahead. that depends on the institution, though. I mean, I think sure. and uh, other, you know, at, the, at maybe research universities, even some liberal arts colleges, you know, the professor is more of an island. I think at smaller colleges and at, um, at community colleges and some other state universities, the professors are few, less of an island, and they do collaborate more. Absolutely. And, there, of course, there is variation. We're talking about something like a median here, if we're talking statistically. Right. So I'm looking at the chron- this. I'm ta- yeah. looking at this week's Chronicle, July 22nd issue, and I've got five uh, actually not very happy faces on the front of the cover. And I've got uh, William McRaven, $1.1 million. Lou Anna K. Simon, Michigan State, $850,000. Michael K. Young, $1.1 million. David Hopkins, $803,000. Renu Kator at uh, University of Houston, $1.3 million. Um, So, and what, the average public college president reported in this article is making $400,000. What are the, um, there's a side of me that, you know, so if we've got a crisis and if there are real problems, to what extent are the leaders actually leading? uh, To what extent are they kind of overpaid and not really doing what they need to do to get the get the get the problems fixed. You know, it's a fraught area and I'm certainly not going to say somebody does or doesn't deserve their pay. Uh, of course not. I can tell you every time I've gone to profile a college president, I come I spend 3 days or 2 days with the person and I come home exhausted. So I think in many cases, at least the ones we've I've had experience to profile, they're working pretty hard. Um, and it's a it's not a it's, it's not, not an easy, easy job, for sure. It's honestly not an easy job, um, you know, and compared to some of the other inequities we see in our society with, you know, CEO pay and, um, you know, entertainers pay and things like that. I mean, put it in, put it in a little bit of perspective. I, I mean, I think that these numbers are important, and I'm glad that the Chronicle runs them every year. I, um, I don't think higher education would be cheaper if the president, you know, would, of, the, of the University of Texas was making half that salary. I don't, these, these numbers don't make the difference. They're symbolically very important, but practically they're not as important. I mean, they're not, cutting these salaries would not save the, you know, save the cost of higher education. Um, I know there are people out there who argue that, you know, it makes the, the leaders at the top less um, sympathetic to students' costs or family costs. And it makes them less sympathetic to even, you know, certainly to what adjuncts are being at, being paid, which is, you know, a case in some cases just a couple thousand dollars per course. Um, it kind of does create this, you know, very teetered um, 
society within higher education of the well-paid and the less-paid and the poor-paid. Yes. Um, that's I think that probably does create some problems um, overall. Um, but you can't necessarily take, look at one of these numbers and say this is the problem in higher ed. Period. You know, no, and symbolically, I, and I, though, I think it is symbolically it is a challenge for the for the um, industry. But um, I mean, at least some of these people are running major institutions with teaching hospitals, uh, complex um, you know, research operations, yeah. uh, you know, laws, business school, you know, a lot of complex, they're, they're not small places, you know, they're effectively running small cities. Um, no, <laughs> mayors don't make this much money, I guess. Maybe there's an argument against paying on, the, on that ground, too, but, um, you know... <laughs> Yeah, no, and I thought it was an interesting juxtaposition that in in the same issue of the Chronicle, um, the chancellor, I think it was the chancellor at uh, Berkeley was saying that, well, it's important for public universities to be doing good for the public. And I, my, I remember from the 80s, it seemed to me that um, there was less distance between faculty and the presidents, and it was this. It was viewed as a service. Somebody, the, somebody was taking on that role to serve this greater good. And the that, I think one of the things that's happened in the stretching of the salaries, and as as your book points out, the the larger number of higher administrators um, in the system that those those drive costs, those drive bureaucracy, those those create a, a distance. And so for, for me and, and our, our analysis and a whole new engineer, the cultural change and the, the emotional change is really a big difference. And, and to your point about social justice, there's, there's almost a moral comp component to this, that there's a sense in which these organizations are, are less egalitarian and less about the public good in part because of some of the changes that take place. I, that's in my assessment, but I'm curious how you react to what I just said. Uh, I think the, the commitment to um, access varies by institution by institution. I think there's um, there are um, a couple of these presidents are, at least um, Luann Simon, for one, um, is part of something called the University Innovation Alliance, which is a group of, um, I think it's 11 um, pretty large research, public research universities, which are Currently, make it have made this commitment to do a lot more to to sort of do more enrolling and graduating, but not by pampering um, more low-income students. Many more, you know, they're all committed to raising the number of students who are eligible for Pell grants, which is kind of like the school lunch. Uh, and but and, and, and I'm talking value. about something different, though. I, I think you know, so that's fine. And but we're talking there. We're talking about so these abstract statistics about in part these places are less committed to social justice in part because they're kind of emotionally distant places themselves and the culture itself is largely rational not particularly caring and and uh it's become less so over the um since 1988 is the point i'm making it's like it's it's less fun to work at a university today it's less con you're less connected with say the your administrations and and your colleagues in many ways than than in say the twenty five years ago, I, there's probably some truth to that. I I often hear that a lot of that is actually sort of disciplinary driven. Also, that you know to get tenure these days because there's the jobs are tighter. There aren't as many tenure track positions that you have to be just you know a top top person in your discipline and 
maybe less so on your campus yeah. governance committees and things like that. And so people are sort of more devoted to their disciplines than they were in you know twenty or thirty years ago. Um, I still continue to think back about that. I'm working on the professor's name, uh, the professor from West Virginia who um, discovered some of the big problems in the drinking water in Flint, um, and really you know stood up to a lot of other forces to make to help get that out there and you know. He's, he's seen in, in Flint, Michigan, as a kind of a champion. You know probably more about this than I do, given where you're located. Um, and I think people were struck at the time, but uh, I was, frankly, that you know we don't see that much that off. We don't see that that often, though. We don't actually see that many, um, you know, sort of champions of the public interest because that's not the kind of research that's easy to get funded, right? Sure. <laughs> so yeah, there's not stuff. as much funding for this kind of sort of public service research that's out there that actually helps discover, you know, a real public health challenge. Yeah. Why don't we take another break and then we'll come back and talk. Uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, the the present and, and, uh, and the dimensions of the crisis. Uh, in the next segment, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, where things are are headed. This is Big Beacon Radio with special guest uh, Goldie Blumenstick. In the next segment, um, we want to talk about uh, where this is all headed. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon Radio. Advertise on the show and reach some of the most committed reformers and transformers in higher education today. Write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to reach your audience today. So we're rejoined uh, in this last segment by uh, Goldie Blumenstick of the Chronicle for Higher Education. And um, uh, Goldie, we want to talk about sort of where this is where this is all headed. So. Um, uh, and you mentioned you mentioned MOOCs and t- ed tech in in your book. Uh, um, what's what's your take on the impact of ed tech and MOOCs on the future of higher ed? Um, obviously, yet to be determined. Ed tech is a very important factor. Uh, it's a you know colleges are spending um, million hundreds of millions if uh, a year on ed tech products. Um, yeah. 
at in schools, and it's probably it's certainly in the billions. Uh, in a lot of cases, they're spending it on products without really understanding uh, what the products do or how well they do it. Uh, there's actually a little we just wrote about this um, this past week. Um, there's there's a small movement now coming along to try to get you know companies and colleges and investors and everybody on the same page to sort of demand a little bit a lot more research about these edtech products you know that the products are being sold without a lot of research behind them on what they do and how well they do it and there's uh, a, a push to make you know efficacy research a little bit you know part of the sales cycle along with the marketing which i think is probably a uh, promising sign for the industry it's maybe a sign of maturation for edtech yeah. um you know, I actually still think MOOCs are going to be very important in higher education. I, one of the things that sort of struck me recently, the developments that struck me as more interesting than most is efforts at MIT and I think uh, University of Illinois to kind of award these, like, you, you can take MOOC classes and sort of get your way, par- use the MOOC classes that you take if you take the test to sort of start your graduate programs. Um, I think we it's been proven that MOOCs are, are a, not a great... Um, tool for students who don't have a lot of experience with higher education, don't have a lot of experience with online education. But for, you know, older adult students, experienced students, they're really probably a good way for people to start their education in, you know, or start to graduate, start to advance education. And I think the fact that these colleges are starting to talk about using MOOCs as nano degrees is a really interesting, you know, nano degrees, meaning, you know, you you get yourself partway through and then you get accepted into graduate school, maybe, you know, with with uh, a quarter of your program already done, I mean, yeah. it's a money saver and it's a sort of a time saver. I think some of those developments are really promising for MOOCs. Yeah, I, and I agree that. I, and again, this goes to the point, you know, so a nano degree is a different type of institutional arrangement. It seems to me that, and you mentioned and you talk about badges in your book, it's, it seems to me that a lot of a lot of what's interesting here isn't the technology enables different kinds of institutional arrangements that would have been uneconomic. Uh, but now they're econ- the technology makes certain kinds of arrangements possible that weren't there, and it's the, the ways in which we combine and collaborate and do, do things differently or make Again, some of it's about time and space, as as with virtual anything. But, but it but it seems to me that it's a it's the different kind of institutional possibilities that are that are really interesting. And we but we tend the um, the bright and shiny objects of ed tech or is the technology, and and in many ways that's the least interesting way part least of all this. Anything. It's like the piece in the background. It's like the app, but you know. Yeah. You don't you don't you don't play with the app except for that Pokemon thing. Um, you know you the app is yep. you don't care about the app. You you want the app because it tells you what time the bus is coming, right? Um, that I don't you know I don't care how that app works. I just want want it to tell me that my bus is coming and I want it to tell me well. You know, do it in the most in three in three swipes. Yeah. So I think that's where the role of technology is starting to um, sort of step back a little bit. Um, it also has this ability to sort of chunk up to change 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 education and put it into chunks and yep. also to Sort of change the the trust factor. Maybe you know, higher ed. You know, colleges have always sort of been the authenticator of knowledge, and I think their that interest that they have in badges right now is fascinating to me. Badges or sub degrees or all the focus on credentials right now that we're starting to see uh, different kinds of credentials that you know a second transcript to go along with your traditional one that a college could authenticate and sort of identify your skills that aren't just your grades but the other things you've learned or proven that you've been able to do while going to college or pursuing life. Um, 
think all that stuff is really a you know a fascinating development for how how education how you know education and our notion of college is evolving. Well, yeah. So the the so in part I so I've, you know the for, when you use the word trust on the show we little lights go off in heads and heads and things, but, but, uh, but I, I think you the think part that, you, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, our heads, heads exploded when we talk about trust, especially in connection with interpersonal trust, but you were talking about sort of trusting, uh, trusting an education or trusting, uh, at, at some part of some artifact or some set of courses. And, and this, and I think the point, the, the sense that part of what's happening is this unbundling that, you know, previously you went to a school and everything, the, the vetting of the, the education, the vetting and assessment of the quality of the education, the content, the curriculum, the pedagogy, it's all one thing. And now some, some of that's being un, unbundled in different, in different modules or different packets, like you were saying. Exactly. And at the same time, I, I've talked to some pretty interesting people out there in higher education, uh, Randy Bass at Georgetown, for one, who talks yeah. about it's important for colleges to start rebundling, to think yes. seriously about what, what they do provide in a bundle, and, but be much more intentional about it, not just provide the bundle because it's in the form that they've always provided the bundle, but rethink the way that they've, what, how they're assembling that bundle and what, are they, what, what belongs in it and what doesn't. But that there's a real opportunity for strategic. Yeah, there's a real opportunity for strategic leadership of a kind that we haven't seen. People have kind of been doing what they've done plus plus, but but uh, there is an opportunity, as you, as you say, to to rebundle in different ways and provide provide different kinds of um, content and curriculum and certification for for people in different areas. We, you know, yeah. so another part of your book you talk a lot about. Um, or talk a little bit about anyways, uh, for-profits and some of the non-profits like Southern New Hampshire and others that are that are taking some of the for-profit business models and adapting them to the non-profit sector. What, what's your assessment of what's going on in those kinds of models? Yeah, I think the, uh, I mean, it's, I, you can just only have to look at the numbers. The enrollments at for-profit colleges, uh, certainly the big um, nationally known brands, um, those have fallen pretty dramatically in the last couple of years as more and more reports have come out about um, some of the you know the high default rates at those schools and some of the frankly abusive recruiting tactics that some of the those institutions have been using to attract students. Um, in some cases, primarily because the students also had um, carried with them federal student grants and loans, and colleges saw them um, as their sort of their loan targets, but weren't weren't really providing the kinds of educations that these students were looking for, which was an education that would lead them to a job that, you know, let them pay off their loans. So we've yeah. seen, I've seen, we've seen a big government crackdown on that from the federal level, from the state level, from attorneys general, and even from the, even from the Consumer Financial Protection Board of this new agency, that new federal agency that looks at financial issues. I do, I, as I noted before, there is though this other thing that's happening as the for-profit sector sort of shrinks as a sort of a force in, on the landscape. We do see the rise of ed tech and the rise of some of these other companies and uh, does other products, and they're actually taking a different role in higher education. They're they're embedded in the in the schools a little bit more. They're providing. There are companies that are helping colleges provide distance education programs. There are companies that are providing adaptive um, learning um, technology in classrooms and devising systems. And I think colleges are going to have to learn how to adjust to an environment in which a lot of what they're a lot of what they're relying on with companies is much much closer to the teaching and the, their students than before. It's not just the dining hall um, outsourced company anymore. They're yeah. 
they're in, they're taking in they're using a lot of technology and a lot of very vital information a lot of vital services that are coming from companies and I think they're going to have to still evolve a model about how to sort of govern and manage all that. So I think it's a, the next big challenge in in the administration of higher education. Yeah, in uh, Chapter 3 in A Whole New Engineer, we talked about the importance of transaction cost economics and how how what you know, part of what's happening is when, when people start to stick to their core competency, that, that was hard to do in the 1940s, but it's real easy to do in the Amazon world where, where a lot of things can be done at a distance and, and you can hire people professionally and, and competently over, over the web to do certain things. And so people uh, start to say, well, what are we, what are we good at? And, and that's, you know, as you say, that's, that's been done in the, like in the food service sector for a long time, but there it's possible to do that elsewhere as, as, as part of, uh, your educational offering, so you can hire people to do things for less than you can sort of do it yourself, and so and and you can and you can manage those contracts efficiently. So well, transaction also, economics argues that you yeah that you're going to do that. Go ahead. And also, some of these people, some of these companies bring you know capabilities that the colleges themselves don't have. Don't you know, have they, that. It's not just that they can do it more more less expensively; they can do it better. But at that point, then you're starting to sort of you know outsource a lot more of your core business, you know, your core responsibility to outside companies. I just, there's nothing wrong with it, but it requires, I think, a different level of oversight and expertise. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, what I, so just, um, we've got, uh, we've got a few minutes left. So what other trends, uh, do you want to talk about, uh, that you see coming down the road for higher ed? Um, I'm pretty intrigued by the adaptive, um, Adaptive courseware, I guess, is the best way to say that. The, okay. the development of courses that um, adapt to the, each individual um, student. Uh, I think there's there's a lot of money going into that area. Frankly, if you don't have the word adaptive in your um, in your pitch to a venture capital guy, now you probably don't get um, get the money unless you unless you have the words college to career in your pitch. Then you could get money. Also, those are the sort of the two places where people seem very excited. Um, I think those are both really fascinating. Um, areas, uh, also challenging ones. I know people who are working in the adaptive courseware arena who are concerned that not enough educators are sort of having a role in the development of some of these um, products and that there's concerns that some colleges might be um, leaving really what should be educational decisions to, to with some of these corporate products. Um, there's a lot of tension in that discussion right now. I think we'll be seeing a lot more of that. And like I said, the college to career um, arena, given the debates about the value of college, I think every institution right now is trying to do whatever it can to at least help their students get a job when they graduate. And, you know, they want to answer that question for students and parents. Um, we're seeing a, I'm seeing a lot of excitement uh, and interest in in the corporate side and then even in the colleges themselves and what they can do to improve improve that whole process, a lot more discussion about using mentors in various roles along the way, and particularly in the, you know, as students go through college, but also helping students find mentors to help them later through well, and of as, as course they make that, the first couple steps out. Yeah, and of course, that's a big part of the uh, emotional and cultural transformation that we call for in a whole new engineer, and we 
wish there was as much time being spent on on the emotional and cultural side as there is on the the, te- the tech side. Goldie, where we we pretty much run out of time. Where can where can people? Uh, what else should they know about uh, what you're doing, and where can they find out about it? Um, well, we're really excited about this, uh, the relearning project at the Chronicle, um, mapping the new education landscape. Um, we have a series of, we do articles and analyses, and we do podcasts. Um, we have a couple, of, our next season of podcasts will be coming out in the fall where we talk to interesting players in the field. Um, chronicle.com slash relearning is the main page people can go to, and from there they can find out information about um, how to get our free weekly newsletter, uh, they can come to our Twitter Twitter handle. We got them all. Relearning Edu for Twitter, or Facebook.com/slash Relearning Project. Um, they could always just um, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Goldie Standard, or send me an email to Goldie Blumenstick. Oh, to just sorry, just Goldie at Chronicle.com. Um, and uh, if they want to check out the book, they can find it at um, GoldieBlumenstick.com. How's that for a lot of uh, That's marketing all, uh, advice after yeah, I just good, complained good, about it everywhere else? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, good stuff. So, Goldie, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Yeah, great, great to have you. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Special thanks to our guest, Goldie Blumenstick from the Chronicle for Higher Education. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.